Welcome to the Supernatural Virtue Podcast, where we offer free episodes discussing important truths of the Catholic Church from the perspectives of faith and reason. Our goal is to help you unpack the dense theological tradition of the Church so that you, your family, or your parish community can grow in faith and love. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back to the Supernatural Virtue Podcast and our course, Experience Catholicism. My name is Tommy Schultz and today we are going to be going over sacred tradition and sacred scripture, which together make up what we call the deposit of faith. So to talk about this a little bit, what we mean by deposit of faith is what has been given to us through divine revelation, either through sacred scripture or sacred tradition. And as we're going to go over today, what we've been given by Christ is the magisterium, which is the interpreter of both sacred scripture and sacred tradition. Now, this might seem a little foreign if you are coming from a Protestant background. This is pretty exclusive to Catholicism that we have an interpreter, an official interpreter of the deposit of faith or of sacred scripture and sacred tradition. So I want to start off today by just looking at a couple Bible verses that really back this up, because we don't just make up stuff in the Catholic Church. What we do is we take what Christ has given us in divine revelation through sacred scripture and sacred tradition, and that is authoritatively interpreted by the magisterium. And we can see here in scripture how Jesus Christ setting up his church is giving the magisterium the authority to interpret divine revelation. So we're going to go first to Matthew 18, 15 through 18. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." So here Jesus is speaking to the apostles and giving them this ability this ability to bind and loose. What loose, whatever is bound on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever is loosed on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now the magisterium is the pope, so Christ gave the keys to the kingdom to Peter, the first pope, and then of course to every pope since then through what we would call apostolic succession. Right, But he also gave this authority to the bishops in union with the Pope. In other words, the apostles here. So he's speaking to the apostles, and he's telling them, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And here is where we get our teaching that the magisterium is the official kind of interpreter of the deposit of faith, sacred tradition, and sacred scripture. So it's not able to take sacred scripture and sacred tradition and change it and make it something it's not, but it is able to authoritatively interpret it. Okay, and then we go to Matthew 16, 18 through 19. It says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, 
and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And this is really one of the big differences between the Catholic Church and other uh, denominations that are out there is that we believe in the primacy of Peter, that Christ built his church on Peter the Rock. I'll give a lot of additional resources in the uh, description of the episode where you can learn more about this, especially going back to the original words and how they were used. So we'll go into all of that and additional resources. But here, Christ is giving this specific call to Peter where he's giving just Peter the keys to the kingdom, and he's telling Peter specifically, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. So we see two verses where it's specific to Peter. Peter has prime and place of all of the apostles, but then we also see it collectively given to the apostles so that the bishops, in union with the Pope, have this authority. All right, let's go now to Matthew 28, 18 through 19. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. And here, you know, we truly believe as Catholics that Christ is going to be with his church, that he's not letting to that he's not going to let the gates of hell prevail against his church. And from this we get certain other teachings such as papal infallibility which we'll go over to in a separate episode on how the church is set up. But here's where we get some of these teachings. This is just to show you that we're not pulling this out of thin air that this is coming from scripture that is part of the deposit of faith, sacred scripture and sacred tradition. And that we have uh, the church, the magisterium, has been given the authority to interpret both sacred scripture and sacred tradition from Christ himself. And then finally, if the, if the term sacred tradition is kind of foreign to you, a lot of denominations will go by sola scriptura or what we know as faith, or as sorry, as, as the Bible alone. So they don't believe in, in sacred tradition, the same as Catholics do. Um, is, so if this is foreign to you, here's a verse from 2 Thessalonians 2.15. It says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. So here, right from the Bible, we see that St. Paul is setting up sacred scripture and sacred tradition, that there are going to be some things that are handed on by tradition or by word of mouth, and there are going to be other things that are written down by letter, sacred scripture, right? All right, so let's start off this um, this whole section here with paragraph 74 of the Catechism. So it, it basically asks the question, well, why is divine revelation important, right? And paragraph 74 says, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, that is, of Christ Jesus. Christ must be proclaimed to all nations and all individuals so that this revelation may reach to the ends of the earth. Okay, so here we see the reason that divine revelation is even important. Today is all, you know, last session we talked about divine revelation and salvation history, but now we're going to kind of dive deeper into divine revelation and see that it's kind of split into these two sections, sacred tradition and sacred scripture. So why is that important? Well, the Catechism starts off by telling us it's important because God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And we come to that knowledge of the truth through either sacred scripture or sacred tradition. All right, so how does all of this work? Let's go to Catechism 75, paragraph 75. 
It says, Christ the Lord, in whom the entire revelation of the Most High God is summed up, commanded the apostles to preach the gospel, which had been promised beforehand by the prophets, and which he fulfilled in his own person and promulgated with his own lips. In preaching the gospel, they were to communicate the gifts of God to all men. This gospel was to be the source of all saving truth and moral discipline. So in other words, Christ gives us this divine revelation. He gives it to the apostles, and the apostles are meant to preach it till the end of the age, right? So this is where we get apostolic tradition. We could also call it apostolic succession, which is that the original apostles— Christ ordained to go and preach the gospel, and that same uh, kind of promulgation has been handed on to every single bishop, pope, priest since then. Now, we have this unbroken line from the time of the apostles all the way to the present where, where they still have that same call to take what Christ has revealed and to preach it to the world. All right, so let's talk about this apostolic preaching. So, In Catechism 76, it goes on further. It says, in keeping with the Lord's command, the gospel was handed on in two ways. All right, so this is where we're going to get into sacred tradition and sacred scripture, all right? The two ways that it was handed on. So it says in paragraph 76, those two ways are orally by the apostles who handed on by the spoken word of their preaching, by the example they gave, by the institutions they established, what they themselves had received, whether from the lips of Christ, from his way of life and his works, or whether they had learned it at the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the first way that that the gospel is handed on is orally, right? In fact, you know, during this time where the gospels are being written, you, you don't yet have the written gospels. So what you have is the oral tradition or the gospels essentially being handed on to the faithful orally, not in writing yet, because the Gospels were not written. Most scholars kind of say probably the first Gospel, if they're going to pinpoint a date, was around the year 60 AD. Um, That could be debated uh, about the actual specific date, but we have all of these years, you know, essentially 30 years from the time of Christ's death to the time of really our first record of the first Gospel being written, right? We have 30 years in there. So what happened during that time? Well, it was handed on orally, all right? And then the second way is, going back to the catechism, in writing. It says, By those apostles and other men associated with the apostles, who under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit committed the message of salvation to writing. Okay, so here is where we see that there is both sacred tradition, very early on at the beginning of the church, and sacred scripture. And what's important to note here with sacred scripture and sacred tradition, as we talked about in the last lesson, that divine revelation comes from God, all right, it's, it's then passed on either orally, sacred tradition, or in writing, sacred scripture. But the important thing here is that divine revelation stops um, in, in its public sense. Divine revelation stops with the death of the last apostle. And so what we have is from the time of Christ through the death of the last apostle, all of those things that were, that were handed on either orally or by writing, are called the deposit of faith. That's what we call the deposit of faith, or this divine revelation that's given to us by God. Now, of course, we talked in the last episode, there are private revelations and other things. We are not required to assent to those as Catholics. We're required to assent to the divine revelation, which was given during the time of the apostles, 
and ended at the death of the last apostle, um, both in sacred scripture and sacred tradition. All right, so how is this handed on? Well, this is handed on through apostolic succession. So if we look at paragraph 77 in the catechism, it says, in order that the full and living gospel might always be preserved in the church, the apostles left bishops as their successors. They gave them their own position of teaching authority. Indeed, the apostolic preaching, which is expressed in a special way in the inspired books, was to be preserved in a continuous line of succession until the end of time. So in other words, those, those Bible verses that I shared with you at the start, Christ is commissioning the apostles to go out and preach this deposit of faith, to safeguard it, to keep it, to interpret it. And that same power won the keys of the kingdom to the Pope, but then also the authority to interpret that's given to all of the bishops in union with the Pope, with the head, right? That that is not just for the apostles of that time and for Peter, the first Pope, but it's actually given in a line of apostolic succession as the bishops uh, ordain other bishops, right? And so that line is unbroken back to the very beginning of the church. All right, Catechism 78 continues. This living transmission accomplished in the Holy Spirit is called tradition, since it is distinct from sacred scripture, though closely connected to it. Through tradition, the church in her doctrine, life, and worship perpetuates and transmits to every generation all that she herself is, all that she believes. The sayings of the Holy Fathers are a witness to the life-giving presence of this tradition, showing how its riches are poured out in the practice and life of the church in her belief and her prayer. So we can look at apostolic tradition or at sacred tradition, we can go all the way back and we can see how the church is already being set up in the very early days of the church, how they're praying, how they're worshiping, how they're living, how they're believing. All of these things are crucial to us being Catholic today. If we didn't have this this sacred tradition, we wouldn't even have the scriptures, right? Because again, those scriptures were orally transmitted throughout many, many years until they were actually officially written down. And then the importance of the magisterium here, which we'll get into in a second, is, you know, the Bible doesn't come with an infallible, you know, listing of all of the books, a table of contents, if you will, right? Somebody had to infallibly say, this is what scripture is, right? And that's what we believe that authority was given by Christ to the magisterium, to the church. All right. So what's the relationship between sacred scripture and sacred tradition? Catechism 80 says sacred tradition and sacred scripture then are bound closely together and communicate one with the other. For both of them flowing out from the same divine wellspring come together in some fashion to form one thing and move towards the same goal. Each of them makes present and fruitful in the church the mystery of Christ who promised to remain with his own always to the close of the age. All right, so sacred and sacred tradition and sacred scripture are so closely bound that they can they really form this one thing which we would call the deposit of faith. So though they are separate, they're so bound together that they would be the the deposit of faith. All right, Catechism 81 says sacred scripture is the speech of God as it is put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit, and holy tradition transmits in its entirety the word of God which has been entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. It transmits it to the successors of the apostles so that, enlightened by the spirit of truth, 
they may faithfully preserve, expound, and spread it abroad by their preaching. So again, the idea here is not that the magisterium is changing the deposit of faith at any point, making it something that it's not, but it's interpreting it for the specific age that we're in. And it's, uh, you could say, developing it as we go through, as we learn more about theology, how do we apply what we have from divine revelation all the way back from the beginning of the church, from the time of Christ, how do we apply that to today? All right? Okay, uh, Catechism 82 says, As a result, the church to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both sacred scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. And this is why, um, by the way, we, we kiss the, the Bible um, during the Mass, why the priest will kiss the scriptures. Um, that's because it is the Word of God. It's the divine Word of God. So we hold it in reverence. Okay. Um, Catechism 83 says the tradition here in question comes from the apostles and hands on what they received from Jesus's teaching and example and what they learned from the Holy Spirit. The first generation of Christians did not yet have a written New Testament and the New Testament itself demonstrates the process of living tradition. In other words, sacred tradition allows us to even have sacred scripture. All right, and then in Catechism 83, it says, Tradition is to be distinguished from the various theological, disciplinary, liturgical, or devotional traditions born in the local churches over time. These are the particular forms adapted to different places and times in which the great tradition is expressed. In the light of tradition, these traditions can be retained, modified, or even abandoned under the guidance of the church's magisterium. So in other words, you have, the way I like to explain it, you have kind of capital T tradition, which is part of the deposit of faith. It's those things that were given by Christ through divine revelation to the apostles and have been handed on since. But there are other traditions, liturgical, devotional, um, you know, even, even practical traditions that we have in the church that can be modified or even abandoned because they aren't part of the deposit of faith. Um, this would be certain things that are just done liturgically or devotionally, okay? But whatever is part of the deposit of faith cannot be changed in the sense that, you know, one day the Bible means this, and the next day it means something completely opposite, right? The church does not have the authority to do that. All right, so let's define some of our terms here. I've been throwing out a lot of terms. So what do we mean by deposit of faith? If we go to Catechism 84, it says, The apostles entrusted the sacred deposit of faith contained in sacred scripture and tradition to the whole of the church. By adhering to this heritage, the entire holy people, united to its pastors, remains always faithful to the teachings of the apostles, to the brotherhood, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So, in maintaining, practicing, and professing the faith that has been handed on, there should be a remarkable harmony between the bishops and the faithful. And this is what's so beautiful for us as Catholics, is that we can be assured that we're following the right path if we're following the church. Because the church has been given, uh, specifically Peter and the other popes have been given the keys of the kingdom, but the church, the bishops in union with the pope, have been given the authority to interpret the deposit of faith. So when we listen to the church, we are all in perfect harmony. All right. Um, I threw around the word magisterium a little bit. Let's talk about what that is, because this might be a little foreign to those who aren't Catholic. 
So in paragraph 85, it says, The task of giving an authentic interpretation of the Word of God, whether in its written form or in the form of tradition, has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church alone. Its authority in this manner is in this matter is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. This means that the task of interpretation has been entrusted to the bishops in communion with the successor of Peter, the Bishop of Rome. All right, and we went over some Bible verses to kind of go through all of that and to kind of show you where all of that is coming from. So uh, paragraph 86 then kind of makes drives the point home here. It says, yet this magisterium is not superior to the word of God, but it is its servant. It teaches only what has been handed on to it. At the divine command and with the help of the Holy Spirit, it listens to this devotedly, guards it with dedication, and expounds it faithfully. All that it proposes for belief belief as being divinely revealed is drawn from this single deposit of faith. So again, this is why we can have assurance that we are on the right path in faith, because the magisterium has been given the authority by God to interpret sacred scripture and sacred tradition. And if we assent to the magisterium in these matters, then we will all have this perfect harmony as lay faithful to the bishops and to the Pope. Okay, a couple other terms we want to go over here, and then we'll get into sacred scripture more in depth. So I want to mention dogma here. Um, The catechism talks about dogmas. There's a, a, a slight difference between doctrines and dogmas. So the catechism defines this. It says in paragraph 88, the church's magisterium exercises the authority it holds from Christ to the fullest extent when it defines dogmas. That is, when it proposes truths contained in divine revelation, or also when it proposes in a definitive way truths that have a necessary connection with them. All right, so a dogma specifically is a te- an infallible teaching of the church, something that has been infallibly defined to be part of sacred scripture, to be part of divine revelation, to be part of sacred tradition, to be a part of this deposit of faith. Um Paragraph 89 in the Catechism says, There is an organic connection between our spiritual life and the dogmas. Dogmas are lights along the path of faith. They illuminate it and make it secure. Conversely, if our life is upright, our intellect and heart will be open to welcome the light shed by the dogmas of faith. So again, I I think I've mentioned this before, but it's not the idea that we have these dogmas that are kind of put on us so that we can't enjoy our lives or so that we have so many rules. Dogmas are meant to illumine the light of faith. They're meant to help us in our walk of faith. All right. um, Now we're going to go to Catechism 92 briefly here. It says, the whole body of the faithful cannot err in matters of belief. Wait a second. (laughs) We look around in the world and we go, people are erring all the time. What does this mean? It's very explicit. The whole body of the faithful cannot err in matters of belief. This characteristic is shown in the supernatural appreciation of faith on the part of the whole people when from the bishops to the last of the faithful, they manifest a universal consent in matters of faith and morals. So in other words, the lay faithful cannot err in matters of belief as long as they are believing what the church believes to be true. What the church has been given in this deposit of faith through sacred scripture and sacred tradition and interpreted throughout the ages. If we as lay faithful assent to that, then we cannot err in matters of belief because we are believing what has been taught by the church all the way back to the beginning of the church during the time of the apostles. 
All right, so let's talk about sacred scripture then. So that was a lot on tradition. Let's talk about scripture. So sacred scripture, we hold the utmost reverence for sacred scripture because it is the word of God. We literally believe that it is the word of God, that that the scriptures are are God-breathed is, is kind of how we would say it theologically. So um, Catechism 102, it says, through all the words of sacred scripture, God speaks only one single word, his one utterance, in whom he expressed himself completely. You recall that one and the same word of God extends throughout scripture, that is, one in the same utterance that resounds in the mouths of all the sacred writers, since he who was in the beginning, God with God, has no need of separate syllables, for he is not subject to time. So in other words, anywhere we look in the sacred scriptures, we are seeing the one source of scripture, that is God, right? Any, any verse that we pull out, anywhere we look in the scriptures, it is the living word of God. All right. Um, 103, paragraph 103 goes on. For this reason, the church has always venerated the scriptures as she venerates the Lord's body. She never ceases to present to the faithful the bread of life taken from the one table of God's word and Christ's body. Paragraph 104 uh, goes on to say, In sacred scripture, the church constantly finds her nourishment and her strength, for she welcomes it not as a human word, but as what it really is, the word of God. In the sacred books, the Father who is in heaven comes lovingly to meet his children and talks with them. So in other words, we could think of sacred scripture as a love letter from God to humanity. And so this begs the question, do we pray through the sacred scriptures? Do we read the scriptures? Do we allow the scriptures to uh, change our lives? Do we allow them, as we read them, do we allow them to affect us? Do we believe that they are living, that they are active, that it is the word of God? Do we believe all of this? And if we don't, what's the reason and how do we start believing this? How do we start believing that when we read scripture, it is Christ speaking to us out of his, out of the depth of his love, the depth of his heart. This is, this is the prime example of a love letter. If you think of a love letter from anyone that you've ever loved in your life and how much you cherish it, well, how much more should we cherish the sacred scriptures, which are the love letter of God to humanity? All right, um, now the catechism is going to go into uh, two things, really three things that we'll end off this video or this uh, podcast with. Uh, the first is the inspiration for sacred scripture. Then we're going to talk about the different senses of scripture. And then we're going to end with the canon of scripture. So where we get the canon. All right, so first, inspiration. Paragraph 105 says, God is the author of sacred scripture. The divinely revealed realities which are contained and presented in the text of sacred scripture have been written down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It goes on in 106, God inspired the human authors of the sacred books to compose the sacred books. God chose certain men who, all the while he employed them in this task, made full use of their own faculties and powers so that though he acted in them and by them, it was as true authors that they consigned to writing whatever he wanted written and no more. So in other words, the scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit. God is the ultimate author of scriptures, but he uses human authors to actually write them down, which is why we're going to get different genres, which is why they're going to be written for different people over different ages. You're going to see a lot of these different things when we look at kind of the literal sense of scripture. Okay. All right. Uh, paragraph 107 goes on. The inspired books teach the truth. Since, therefore, all that the inspired authors or sacred writers affirm should be regarded as affirmed by the Holy Spirit, 
we must acknowledge that the books of Scripture firmly, faithfully, and without error teach that truth which God, for the sake of our salvation, wished to see confided to the sacred Scriptures. That the sacred Scriptures are inerrant. They are without error. All right? It's very explicit here in the Catechism that the Scriptures are without error. They are, div- they are divinely breathed. They are God-breathed. They are the Word of God. All right, so how do we read Scriptures as Catholics then? So let's talk about the senses of Scripture. Paragraph 115 says, According to an ancient tradition, one can distinguish between two senses of Scripture, the literal and the spiritual, the latter being subdivided into the allegorical, moral, and anagogical senses. The profound concordance of the four senses guarantees all its richness to the living reading of Scripture in the church. All right, a lot of big words. We're going to unpack it very simply here. So you essentially have two um, basically two senses of scripture, literal and spiritual. Okay. So let's talk about literal first. Paragraph 116 says the literal sense is the meaning conveyed by the words of scripture and discovered by exegesis following the rules of sound interpretation. All other senses of sacred scripture are based on the literal. Now, exegesis just essentially is the study of scripture. So basically what this means is what did it literally mean what did, what did the words of Scripture literally mean um, during the time that they were written? Okay? That's the literal sense, the meaning conveyed by the words of Scripture. Then we get into the spiritual, spe- spiritual sense, of which there are a couple. So paragraph 117 says, The spiritual sense, thanks to the unity of God's plan, not only the text of Scripture, but also the realities and events about which it speaks, can be signs. So here we have the allegorical, the moral, and the anagogical. Big words, but they're pretty easy to unpack. So the allegorical just means, um, and the Catechism says it here, we can acquire a more profound understanding of events by recognizing their significance in Christ. Thus, the crossing of the Red Sea is a sign or type of Christ's victory and also of Christian baptism. So when we talk about allegorical, we're talking about how typically something in the Old Testament um, goes into the New Testament. So like what it just said here with the Red Sea as a sign of baptism, or really anywhere that something points to Christ. The allegorical sense is pointing us to Christ and his significance by tying it to another verse. All right, the moral sense, um, the events reported in Scripture ought to lead us to act justly. As St. Paul says, they were written for our instruction, right? So the moral sense is, how are we supposed to live? The anagogical sense, this is kind of one of those big words, but it's pretty easy, means we can view realities and events in terms of their eternal significance, leading us toward our true homeland. Thus, the church on earth is a sign of the heavenly Jerusalem. So when we talk about the anagogical sense, it's pointing us to our ultimate goal, our ultimate end, which is heaven itself. So when when scripture verses point us towards that heavenly home, we could talk about the anagogical sense. All right, we'll end with the canon of scripture then. There's much more to be said about the canon of scripture, and I'm going to provide a bunch of information in the additional resources if you look at the description of the podcast episode. 
But canon of scripture very briefly. So again, the canon of scripture, you know, what's actually in the scriptures was not decided right away. And in fact, the books weren't even written right away, right? So over time, what you had was was Christians using these books in their churches. And from the very beginning of the Gospels being written, there was a general consensus of what was part of Scripture. But over the years, what had happened is people tried to add books, people tried to get rid of books, um, especially after the Protestant Reformation, when certain books were taken out of the Bible. The church had to respond and say, this is the definitive listing of books that belongs in the Scriptures. So in other words, this is the canon of Scripture. So if we go to paragraph 120 in the Catechism, it says, It was by the apostolic tradition that the church discerned which writings are to be included in the list of sacred books. Uh, It goes on, This complete list is called the canon of Scripture. So the official canon of Scripture, it says, It includes 46 books from the Old Testament, 45 if we count Jeremiah and Lamentations as one, which some Bibles do, and 27 for the new. Now notice there are more books there than what are in a typical Protestant Bible because certain books were taken out during the Protestant Reformation. So we would call these books as Catholics the deuterocanonical books. That just essentially means the second canon, the deuterocanonical books. Those books that were not taken out of Catholic Bibles are Baruch, Tobit, Judith, First and Second Maccabees, Wisdom, and Sirach, or Ecclesiasticus, depending on your translation of the Bible. Uh, Protestants will call these apocryphal books, but we call them deuterocanonical books. They are officially a part of the canon of Scripture. All right, we'll end with this uh, quote here, this paragraph from the Catechism 133. It says, The Church forcefully and specifically exhorts all the Christian faithful to learn the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ by frequent reading of the divine Scriptures. Ignorance of scriptures is ignorance of Christ. So all of this talk is to say, if you're not reading the Bible, you should be, because it's a love letter from God to us. It's his divine breath, his divine word that's given to us, written down for us, for our own edification, for our own sanctification, right? And same with sacred tradition. So when we look at sacred tradition and sacred scripture together, we call that the deposit of faith. The magisterium, which is all of the bishops in union with the Pope, have the authority from Christ to interpret the deposit of faith, that is, sacred scripture and sacred tradition. And all of this should inspire us to look at sacred scripture and sacred tradition, to read it, to soak it in, to take it in, and allow it to change our lives. Because again, divine revelation, what it's all about, is about God coming to man because he loves us. Know my continued prayers for you, and may God bless you now and always. 